So, uh, as you can tell, Pastor Robert is out of town, and so I get the pleasure of being with you this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Brian Fillingham. I am the Minister of Discipleship here at Spring Valley Baptist Church. And before we jump into the sermon, uh, I wanted to mention just a few things. First of all, next week, next week you're going to start seeing videos, video promotions for our D groups or our discipleship groups. Uh, if you are familiar with what a D group is, I want to challenge you to begin to pray even now about who God is calling you to join together with in a D group. If you are not familiar with a D group, you can join the rest of us on August 29th. That's a Sunday, August 29th. Immediately after life groups, we're going to join in the fellowship hall uh, and have an informational meeting. So you will see those videos coming uh, every week throughout the month of August. Um, and then we will conclude August on August 29th with an informational meeting about discipleship groups. This morning, we begin our one conversation. I know that uh, our people are used to that. They know what one conversation is. But if you're a guest with us, let me explain this very quickly. You'll notice that the first thing that we do on Sunday morning is we gather for worship. A lot of other churches, the first thing they do is gather for small groups or for Sunday school or life groups. And we kind of decided to flip that on its head for one reason, and that's because uh, we engage every Sunday morning in what we call one conversation. The conversation begins here in the sanctuary as we introduce either the theme or the passage, and the conversation continues on into our small groups, which we call life groups. So right after the service, we all head into our life groups. If you don't have a life group, you can swing by the Welcome Center in the atrium on your way out, and we will help you with that. But we, we head on into our life groups, and we discuss even further, we dive even deeper into the scriptures that are introduced in the worship time. And so this morning, we are in 1 Kings. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're in 1 Kings chapter 16, the tail end of 16. We're in verse 29 through 33, and then we're going to jump to the first part of 17. A little bit of background uh, as we get into our reading, uh, and you're, I'm sure, familiar with this, so it's just a refresher for you, is that um, in 1 Kings, they're talking about kings. I didn't, didn't want to ruin it for you, but they are. They're talking about kings. So um, uh, you can't make assumptions sometimes, right? So, uh, but in 1 Kings, they're talking about kings. And if you remember way back when uh, in the Bible when the Israelites were fussing about a fussing, that's a, a technical term. They were fussing about um, uh, wanting a king, right? They were asking God for a king, asking God for a king, and, and God would send a prophet and say, hey, if you get a king, this is what it's going to look like. And they were saying, we don't care, we want a king. All the other nations around us have kings, we want a king. And so, if you remember, the first king is Saul, right? And, and Saul, I love the story of Saul, right? Because he's, he's anointed, he's God's chosen king, and yet when He's introduced to the nation of Israel. Where is he? He's hiding out in the baggage, right? He's over in the luggage area trying to hide behind all the bags. And everybody's like, where's our king? Where's our king? And he stands, you know, he finally stands up. Somebody brings him up. And, and so that's how the nation of Israel gets their first king, uh, this, uh, this guy that's hiding behind the luggage. And so, uh, so we start with Saul. Saul gives way to, to David's reign. David's reign gives way to Solomon's reign. Uh, and then the nation of Israel kind of goes through uh, some turmoil, right? The nation of Israel becomes divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And we see this gradual spiral, this gradual uh, movement away from the Lord. And you'll, you'll see as you read through 1 Kings, you'll see this phrase, the sins of Jeroboam. See, the, King Jeroboam was, was king over uh, the northern region, and his, it's not that he was such a 
terrible, sinful man. The, the sins of Jeroboam, the problem there was that Jeroboam not only sinned, as all the other kings did, right, because nobody's perfect, but he led the people of God into sin. So it wasn't just his sin that was so terrible. It was that he led the chosen people of God into sin. And so you'll see all through 1 Kings and, and on into 2 Kings, these kings are being compared to Jeroboam. And it's usually he committed the sins of Jeroboam. So-and-so committed the sins of Jeroboam. And what the scripture is telling us is that this king, just like Jeroboam, leads the people of Israel directly into sin. You see, as, as leaders, we're called to guard the hearts and protect the flock the best we can. And these kings were not doing that. These kings were leading them. They were saying, God's over there, but my God's over here. I'm going to lead these people away from the true God. It kind of reminds me, as we see this spiral of decline for Israel, what Robert said several weeks ago. He said, what one generation tolerates, the next generation embraces. What one generation tolerates, the next generation embraces. And let me push pause here real quick and share with you just kind of my personal concerns is that we as a generation in the church, what we tolerate, not just in our culture, but in our churches, our children and our grandchildren are going to fully embrace. Whatever garbage we tolerate, whatever apathy we tolerate, our children and our grandchildren will embrace it as a fact of life. That, to me, is terrifying. Anyways, back to the sermon. So, so we, get, we see this. We see this generation after generation. They don't stand against the king. They just follow him blindly into sin. And it finally reaches a pinnacle right here in 1 Kings 16, 29 through 33. We're going to read 29 through 33 and then skip down to verse, or chapter 17, verse 1. It says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah... Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, but he, was also, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar to Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all of the kings of Israel before him. Skip down to verse 1 in chapter 17. Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives... Whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. 
So we begin with our first point in chapter 16, verse 29, the bold sin in the culture. We see right here in verse 30 that Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Can you imagine that being said of you in Scripture or in any book? So-and-so did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any king before him, than any student before him. I said students because you're sitting right in the middle, right? Which I love. This is fantastic. Students right here. And as soon as I said students, all of them went, what? You see, he not only considered, we talked about the sins of Jeroboam, right? The sins of Jeroboam, which was leading God's people into sin. That's what was so tragic, so terrible about Jeroboam's sin. He not only committed that, he actually considered that trivial, leading the people of God away from God himself, he considered trivial to the point that he married somebody not just outside of the nation of Israel, which was a big deal, right? It doesn't really uh, allude to that, but he steps outside of of the nation of Israel and he marries someone from a neighboring nation, a pagan nation. But if you, if you study further, Jezebel was not just the princess of the neighboring nation. Jezebel was a priestess of Baal. So he unites himself, the king of God's people unites himself, not just with a pagan nation, but with a priestess of a false god. Not only does he lead God's people away from God himself, he unites himself and thereby unites God's people with a pagan nation and leads them to worship a false god. So I want us to think about our culture. And to be honest, this was kind of hard to walk through because there were were so many examples. What one generation tolerates, the next generation embraces. And we're seeing that come true in our culture too. So it got me thinking about the seven deadly sins. When I was a child, I always thought that these sins were the sins that once you committed them, you were excommunicated from God's family, right? Thank God that is not true. Right? Once you've given your life to Christ, once you've stepped into relationship with him, you're guaranteed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and you cannot be separated from the Lord. Let's make that clear this morning. But these seven deadly sins, the reason they were considered, quote, deadly sins is because they're kind of like, uh, they're kind of like gateway sins. Right? The sin of pride. If you don't confess that, if you don't recognize that in your life, and if you don't uh, push against it and resist it, If you just dive right into it, it can open the door to other sins. It can lead you further into the darkness. And so we have the the sin of pride, the sin of greed, the sin of lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and laziness. But see, in our culture, these aren't really that big a deal, right? Not only are they not that big of a deal, they're kind of part of the fabric of who we are. You see, pride is encouraged, greed is endorsed, Lust is promoted, envy is rewarded, gluttony is expected, wrath is required. If you don't believe me, drive on I-20. <laughs> and laziness is paid. 
You see, in our culture, pride is encouraged in our culture. Greed is endorsed in our culture. Lust is promoted in our culture. Envy is rewarded in our culture. Gluttony is expected in our culture. Wrath is required in our culture. And laziness is paid in our culture. If you don't think that we are boldly sinning in the presence of God, you've got another thing coming. See, my concern for us this morning as I step into the darkness, I always step out of the light. <laughs> Not a good analogy. All right. <laughs> All right, man, that's going south. All right, so my concern this morning is that we have talked ourselves into being coaxed out of the light and into the darkness. See what I did there? Good stuff. All right. But we've, we've talked ourselves into, well, pride's not that big of a deal. Greed's not that big of a deal. Lust isn't that big of a deal. Envy isn't that big of a deal. Gluttony, wrath, laziness, they're not that big of a deal. And so we continue down that path. And over time, it doesn't feel like bold sin. It doesn't feel like sin. Shoot, our culture celebrates and legislates sin. So those little things are not that big of a deal. And so Elijah is dropped into a culture of bold sin. But man, he comes on the scene hard. 1 Kings 17, 1, it says, Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab. So the first time we see Elijah, we don't know anything about him. We don't know his pedigree. We don't know his background. We don't know his training. We don't know who he mentored under. We don't know any of that stuff. We know that Elijah is standing in front of King Ahab and calling him out. That's all we know at this, this very first chapter, or very first verse in chapter 17. So it says, he said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So he's standing in front of the king, and, and look at this. He says, as the Lord God of Israel lives. You see, in that culture, he's immediately calling out the fact that Ahab is worshiping something that he's created with his own hands. Ahab is worshiping a God that human imagination conjured up. And he declares, standing in front of the king, that I serve a living God, that I serve a living God. So when we confront bold sin, we must stand on our second point, which is bold theology. You see, we have to know who God is when we walk out into our culture because our culture is going to tell us that God is disconnected, that God doesn't care, that God makes mistakes. Let me tell you this morning, God does not make mistakes. God is a creator God. He's a perfect God. He's a just God, but he's also a merciful, graceful, forgiving God. But when we walk into our culture, our culture is going to tell us something radically different from what the Scripture tells us. And so that's why we stand firm on bold theology. Who is God? What does God's Word say he is? I love the songs today describing God as greater and creator all these ama amazing things. That is who God is. And so as, as Elijah stands before Ahab, he declares that he serves a living God. He doesn't serve a statue. 
doesn't serve something out of our imagination. He serves a living God. And you can imagine that Ahab, being a Jewish man, he immediately starts remembering the history of the Jewish background, right? He starts remembering how Jesus delivered the Israelites. He starts remembering how God declares his presence over and over because God leads his people and demonstrates his power for all to see. And we see that in Joshua 3, 10 through 13, we see that, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, which, which symbolized the, the presence of God, right? The, the priests had to carry it with, po- with poles. They couldn't touch it. And if they touched it, they died. Like it was a big deal. And as they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan River, the first priest's foot touches the water and the water separates and a wall builds up on the upstream side and millions of people walk across the river. God declares his presence and takes care of his people. We see this all throughout Exodus. We see Moses in the burning bush. We see the parting of the Red Sea. We see a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. We see manna falling from the sky. We see the people of Israel meeting their God for the first time at Mount Sinai as it's covered in smoke and there's thunder and there's lightning and there's a loud trumpet blast. See, God isn't a secret God. God doesn't like other God's to get glory. God is a present God who makes himself known. And of course, that last little piece where they set up the tabernacle and the spirit of God hovers over the tabernacle. And when it's time to leave, the cloud moves and the people know and they pack up and they follow the cloud. And when the cloud stops, they stop and they build the tabernacle again. And God rests there with his people. See, so when Elijah declares to Ahab that he serves a living God all of that reality begins to flow back to Ahab. And Ahab has to know, he has to stand in his guilt and his sin and realize that he's worshiping something that he paid somebody to carve. Where Elijah is worshiping and serving a living God. So when we confront bold sin in our culture, we must stand firm on bold theology. We know who God is. God is a merciful God. He's a graceful God. He's a just and perfect God. He's an almighty God. He's creator. He's sustainer. He's fulfiller. He is alive. So when we confront bold sin, it requires us to stand firm on bold theology. And our bold theology must lead us to bold obedience. We pick up again and... and Chapter, uh, chapter 17, verse 1, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, Ahab's talking to, I mean, uh, Elijah's talking to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Do you know what Baal was known for? Baal, yeah, Baal was the God of storms. He was the God of rain, right? Asherah was the God of fertility or the God of new life. And Elijah stands in front of the king, and he says, hey, you can worship those stone things that you created out of your imagination. That's fantastic. But I'm telling you, the God that controls everything isn't bringing any rain. You're about to enter into a severe famine for three and a half years because my God is creator God, and he's alive and well, and he's calling his people back. And so Elijah says, no rain until you see me again, until I say so. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, he says. Turn eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. See, the word Kareth is, is probably not pronounced that way, but that's how I do it in, in my southern uh, uh, 
lingo. And so, but that word literally means to be cut off or to be separated. So when Elijah hears that, he's hearing God say, hey, go to this place that's completely cut off and completely separated from the culture in which you live. And stay there, and I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. Not only that, I want you to drink from this little stream that's going to come through. And I'm not going to pick like a swan to bring you food or a sweet little dove. I'm going to pick a nasty raven to bring you food day and night. Because in that culture, the raven was disgusting. The raven was the most unclean bird on the face of the earth. And God says, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to direct the raven to bring you food. This, this filthy animal, he's part of my creation, and he's going to take care of you. The raven was known for not even taking care of their own young. Right? When, when the birds hatched, they were known to just fly off and, and leave the young, not even feed their own young. They were also known, known as scavengers. And so I can think, this is just me putting myself into Scripture. If I'm Elijah, I'm thinking, Lord, I don't really want like food that's been, you know, run over by a carriage or, you know, trampled by horses' feet, something like that. Like, you know, maybe you just give me like a bow and arrow or something. I don't, I don't need to be surrounded by nasty birds either. Um, but Elijah doesn't, you know, he doesn't, he may think that, I don't know. Um, hopefully he wasn't like, like I am. But, but in verse 5, he moves forward in obedience. It says, so he, being Elijah, did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. See, he not only stepped out and stood on his firm theology and called sin out and stood on who who he knew God was, but that theology challenged him and motivated him to move forward in bold obedience. As we conclude this morning, I wanted to read out of, uh, well, not out of, I wanted to read Psalm 19. On my way in, uh, on my way in this morning, I was uh, going, well, on my getting ready this morning, I was going through my quiet time, and, um, uh, and, I, and I turned over to Psalm 19, and it just, it just kind of hit me, and so I thought, you know what, I'm going to just read it this morning. And uh, trust the, the Spirit to, to move and speak to you through it. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. And they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run its course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, 
than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins that they may not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This morning, I don't know how God is dealing with your heart. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know the challenges that you're facing. But my prayer for us this morning is that God would give us fresh ears to hear the Holy Spirit. That God give us bold courage to follow that voice. Maybe this morning you're struggling and you've been gradually coaxed out of the light and into the darkness. You've, you've created a, 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 a series of excuses to excuse away your sin, whatever that looks like. Maybe this morning you just need to come to the altar either literally or figurative, figuratively and lay it down at the altar and repent of that and turn back to the Lord. We sang about it earlier. He stands with arms open, ready for you to come back. Maybe this morning you're struggling with disobedience. Maybe you've made a litany of, of, uh, of things, a list of things that, that well, God, I can't follow you there because of this, this, and this. I can't do that because of this, this, and this. So maybe this morning is an, is an obedience issue. You can't follow him with bold obedience. You're trying not to follow him at all. Maybe this morning, again, you come to the altar and lay that at his feet. Or maybe for you this morning, it's not an issue of obedience. It's not an issue of struggling with bold sin because you haven't even met him yet. Maybe you don't know that there's a God that loves you so desperately and so dearly that he sent his only son to pay the price that you could never pay. That his death, burial, and resurrection wipes away the sins of your past, your present, and your future and adopts you into the family of God. So maybe today you just need to say, Lord, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And I step into that relationship. And I make you the Lord and overseer of my life. Whatever it is this morning, I want to challenge you to step out with bold courage and take that step of faith. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you this morning that, um, Lord, that you never... Let us get too far away. Lord, as you do here with the, with the Israelites, Lord, you send a message and you call your people back. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that our hearts would be sensitive to your calling as you call us back to pursue you, to stand bold in our culture against sin, strong and firm on our theology, and walking in obedience. Lord, we thank you, we love you, we pray that you would give us the bold courage that we need to follow you and to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.